Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show i was rhyming in different languages since I was a child. Um, so I always had rhythm, connotation, I always had energy and a little bit of theatrics in the way I spoke and everything. And when I saw spoken word poetry for the first time, I fell in love with it. And I was like, A, I can do this, and B, this would be a great way to meet girls. Why is that? You know, it's, it was the simplest, cheapest way to be a rock star. So. When you quit being a teacher, did you quit or were you fired? Like, oh yeah. So this, this is this is the good stuff. What happened was I had no intentions of ever quitting. I'm like, I'm gonna do this on the side. This is gonna be fun. It's a cool way to keep life interesting outside of my nine to five. Um, and it took a life of its own. So now all of a sudden, you know, success is kind of a curve like this, where it's, you know, as everything is starting to work, it's starting to move. So your biggest reward are opportunities, not rewards. It's if somebody gives you an opportunity to work. That's what you're working towards. It's really a fascinating way to put it. Yeah. Your biggest you, you, your biggest success is your opportunities, not your rewards. Yeah. So if somebody gives you another opportunity to work, that's what you're aiming for. And everything else comes. And I think it's all how you look at it. We only have control over our attitudes, our outlook, and our effort. So we're, we're going to keep trying it, which is I'm going to open it up. Like you said, right, the yep. random chapter. Round 48. Chapter 48, which emotions are you feeding? Yes. So and I love this concept because let's say, you know, you had that guy betray you with a deal or you lost a relationship or, you know, you these publishers rejected you unless you jumped through certain hoops. Yeah. You could feed the emotion of like, oh, you know, I hate them. Yeah. And that you will you will feed it in a very literal sense in that it'll keep growing like yeah. the next morning you'll wake up and that emotion will be bigger yeah and it's it gets addictive uh but if you stop feeding it and you focus on actions that move you away from it to succeed and you know this is i get from from reading the chapter you, you know that's how you succeed and it's all how you look at it we only have control over our attitudes our outlook and our effort you know, this is, we always have control over these things. We don't have control over how other people are going to act and we don't have control over how things are going to play out. So even in the situation where this, this friend who I, who I really considered a brother at this point, we had built that bond and I don't have a biological brother. So I was definitely leaning into it even more than I probably should have, you know, turned out to have betrayed me. And, but when I, when I was able to take the emotion out of it 
and look at the situation, he still believed in me. He really thought I was going to be his free ride to the top. He just needed me to focus on my art, and he was trying to finagle and, and Ponzi scheme a bunch of money for me to be able to focus on the art while he rode he, he rode on my coattails. It just blew up in his face, and he and he took off. And he still had the opportunity had I confronted him and be like, "Hey, I don't think this is real. What's what's up with this?" Had he simply faced me and had an adult conversation, we probably would have figured it out together. Mm. But he ran, and I think for me, seeing that and telling myself probably within the first month of being at my lowest point, that, hey, you have the opportunity. And, and, and it was through hearing your story, hearing you know J.K. Rowling's story, hearing stories of people who, who had decided rock bottom was the foundation to build. That's where you're going to start building. Deciding, I'm going to work until this story has value and I'm glad it all happened. And again, it, it wasn't a philosophical uh, moment where I was like, I have finally found the value in all this difficulty. It was okay, this kicked my ass. It put me into high gear. I, I am working harder than I ever thought I could. I am achieving more than I ever thought I could. And now, you know, when I sold that condo I lived in, that condo is, it was attached to the subway station in, in Toronto. The, the first is Kipling subway station. There's a condominium attached to it. And that's where I lived. It was prime. Mm. Every day that I had to go downtown for work or you know get a gig or for a meeting, I had to take the subway and stare at this giant monument of my failure. Every single and it killed me. Mm. And the only moment that it stopped killing me is when I had enough where I could buy two. Mm. You know that, and, and I'm being honest. It wasn't. I didn't get over it until I actually had enough money to buy two of them. No, I think that is very honest because I think people, you know. People think that, oh, when you get over the uh, frustration of losing money, uh, that solves your problems. No, it's getting over the frustration so you could then make money again. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, money does solve your money problems. So, you know, that's an important thing to remember. But it's the emotions that you feed that will kill you. It's not necessarily the lack of money. Yeah, money's not going to make you feel good enough. Money's not going to be able... Unless you're spending your money on other people, it's not going to buy happiness. Um, but it's a necessary tool. And I do believe in two tax brackets. I believe in you are struggling or you are not struggling. I believe that once you've graduated to not struggling, whatever that may be, I think they say it's 75 grand for the average city, probably not New York, but the average city, then I don't think there's going to be much of a difference between that 75 grand and making a 75 million in terms of how you feel about yourself and your self-esteem. And I think I think I think that's right unless right, you you'll you'll go back to your base level of self-esteem. So let's say someone's a billionaire, but then suddenly they need to buy a football team and a private jet in order to have self-esteem. There's yeah. there's probably some issue there that's that's unresolved. Completely. And you start hanging out with people who, you know, the moment you hit a certain threshold, you start meeting people in the threshold above that, and then all of a sudden your your accomplishments seem cute and minute in comparison to theirs. Yeah, that's we what identify it, it it does. We're trying to keep up. Yeah, yeah, and we identify our gaps in relation to these people that we're around. And so for me, even in going back to the emotions you feed, you feed your emotions through your environment and through your choices. So if you hang out with people who are always complaining, you're always going to complain. If you're hanging out with people who are constantly trying to show off, you're going to want to show off as well. Um, if you're starting to eat crappy food, you're always going to be in a crummy mood. Like this stuff matters, yeah. you know, and it, it, it doesn't require me to, to go into detail about the healthiest foods. You can figure that stuff out. My goal with this book is to get you to ask these important questions. And, and one of the important things that I do and, and why I try to differentiate myself uh, from a self-help guru is I encourage people, if things are feeling too heavy, go to therapy, seek a professional. I say, listen, I'm a rhyming beardo. You know, there's so much I can do. And I'm here to help take your, your very heavy emotions and put them into, make them feel lighter by putting them into easy digestible words. But we're going to hit a limit where you might need some more advanced help. And this book isn't about having all the answers. This book is about encouraging you to ask the right questions. So here's chapter 11. Putting yourself first is not selfish. Yes. Which is interesting because like when I first wrote this book, Choose Yourself, yeah. everyone thought, oh, that's a really, you know, not everyone, but I would get some emails. That's a really selfish title. You know, mm -hmm. you should think of others. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is the way to think of others. You have to 
take care of yourself so you have the best ability to yeah. help others. But so so I resonate with this chapter title a lot. But uh, you're right here. Uh, selfish isn't pursuing what you want in life. It's when you're not also helping others in theirs. And I think that's uh, really important. And I think it's also what can also be selfish is expecting other people to put you first. You know, and I'm and, and the simple analogy, the popular one is, you know, in an airplane, if there's if there's an emergency, they say put your oxygen mask on first, then help the person beside you, or even help your child, because man, it, I think I I use that analogy and choose yourself. There you go, <laughs> and, and and it's and it's the perfect analogy. You're not going to be of any value to anybody else if you're not taking care of yourself, and we can become the source of all the things that we're searching for in life. We can be a source of uh, love. We can be a source of energy, a source of enthusiasm, and we can share that with other people. Because right now we're being very transactional. You know, I'm going to love you as long as you love me back uh, versus, or, or I want you to make me happy. I had a hard day. I'm looking for you to make me happy now. And it's better where it's like, hey, let's, let's handle our own situations. And then once we have our stuff under control, share with other people. And that in turn will also help us feel better about ourselves. And it's counterintuitive because people think that does make you selfish, but it's not. It's essential. Now, this next one um, is you have quotes in between the chapters, and uh, yeah. I like this one. The fear of uncomfortable ideas and uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable places robs us of the amazing potential we all have. And I love that quote because, you know, every, everybody wants to be comfortable. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's important to go to the places that are the least crowded. That's where you find success. Yes. And that's by definition outside of the comfort, comfort yes. zone because the comfort zone is where everybody is. Yes. And so, you know, if you're afraid to do that, which many people are, like for instance, I'll just give an example, you know, because we're, we, we, you know, we know the, the book world. A lot of people are afraid to self-publish self because mm -hmm. they think other people will look down on them. There's like a, they think that there's a stigma attached to it, yeah. not realizing that stigma is, is gone and you make more money and you sell more copies when you yes. sell publish. So, uh, uh, but you only, you only find that out by overcoming this fear and trying it, like taking yes. an action. And only actions really can move you beyond the comfort zone. Yes. So maybe, I don't know if you want to... Oh yeah, completely. I mean, and you said it perfectly. And I think, first and foremost, the goal here isn't to shame people who are afraid, right? Whenever any living creature is afraid it will seek safety. Safety is usually certainty, uh, things that we already recognize, things that are comfortable. So whether you're in physical danger, you know, you're going to run home or go somewhere that you feel comfortable, or whether you're in you know, danger of an idea or you're, you're in danger of getting embarrassed or you're in danger of being rejected, you're going to run to something you know. You're going you're gonna to lean on something you know. You're going to fall back on something you know. So I think it's completely normal that we all do this, but the moment we become self-aware of it and realize that, hey, my fear is the compass. My fear is actually telling me where I should go. And it never goes away. You know, we will always be afraid of something. You know, you, you know we're, not, we're not supposed to wait until we're not afraid to take that next step. Okay, so you say fear is the compass. So there are obviously some things you should be afraid of. Like you should be afraid of throwing yourself in front of a train. Mm. So, but how do you find... How do you find where the fear is the right combination of rational fear and, and interesting fear? Well, I think often, you know, it's, it's, it's almost differentiating fear and phobia, right? So, you know, fear is a gift that Mother Nature gave us to keep us alive, you know. Um, if, if, if the potential outcome will be physical death and you never having another day on this earth again, then, you know, Consider it and potentially do it. However, great things happen from people who are also ignoring that fear and, and you know, testing their own limits. And sometimes, you know, whether we're thinking Steve Irwin or we're thinking other people, they, they've made ultimate sacrifices to live out the life that they wanted to live. And I feel people have that right as well. Um, but mo the problem now is we live in the safest time our species has ever had. But that fear mechanism is still there. So now... And there's judgment. I, I think just like there's... Uh, you shouldn't judge people who want to be in the comfort zone. I feel like there's a lot of judgment for people who want to explore outside the comfort zone. Well, because it, 
if if you're willing to go outside your comfort zone and I'm not, I have to be able to justify why you're wrong because I don't want to do it. You know, because you're you're also make you're also exposing my insecurities and my fears. So I have to say, well, you know, James didn't become a successful entrepreneur by taking risks. He he got lucky. Oh, he knew the right people, or he probably had some family money. And I have to diminish your accomplishments be, to to make myself feel feel better. And I think what it is now is we are not in physical danger anymore. On a day-to-day basis, our fear receptors are not going off because we're in danger. Now we experience fear, and the fear lingers well after the danger is even gone. Um, you know, where that, that might not be the case for a squirrel. If a squirrel is running and it sees a dog and the dog scares the shit out of it and it runs in the other direction, the fight-or-flight mechanism happened, it took off, now it's not thinking about that dog anymore. It's back to, to looking for nuts and being back in the present. For us, something scary happens. And again, it's not often, it's very rarely has to do with our personal safety. It has to be with like, oh my God, I, I, I went to Starbucks and I had a mustard stain on my shirt and everybody noticed. And now you're thinking about it all day. Mm-hmm. And now you're more cognizant of it. And now that's a fear. When the reality is like, hey, try it out. You know, you'll probably realize that most people aren't looking at you, especially in a city like this. People are too busy in their own worlds. Like what's what's some small things that you do that are like kind of facing fears and what what's something like a, a, a kind of new challenge for you in the future that you're uh, uh, afraid of, but you're, you know, maybe you see this as a compass. I mean, so, I mean, the big one for me during this story was admitting I messed up, admitting I needed help. You know, I was afraid to tell people that I messed up. I, I was really and, and thinking I was choosing starving and I was choosing I lost 20 pounds. And I, as you can see, I don't have 20 pounds to lose. And I uh, was isolating myself. And I thought that was better than just telling people that, hey, that deal that I was bragging to you guys about, it doesn't exist. It was too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Remember when you said if something's too good to be true, it probably is. I don't want to let you know that you were right. I was afraid of the embarrassment that was going to come from that until I had that thought. Like, you'd rather starve to death and have anxiety all day, every day, than just admit that you're wrong. Uh, you'd rather stay where you are instead of asking people for help. So what if people say no? You're going to survive it. And I think that's the big thing is because we're not in mortal danger anymore. We start to look at everything else as the end of the world. Rejection as the end of the world. Even now, for, for this book specifically, now that it's come out in the States, I've had to shed a lot of my Canadian sensibilities. You know, The Canadian sensibility is you text somebody once or send them an email once and they don't reply, that's a no. They don't want to hear from you again and that's it. You know, And I've learned spending a lot of time out in LA, like, no, you got to poke somebody five, six times because they have so much going on in their own life and maybe they were replying to your email and then a notification dropped and they clicked on the notification and they fell down a wormhole and doing some other 10 tasks. Now they forgot they were even replying to you. So just keep poking at them. And, you know, I would have never known that you read this book unless somebody had, had reached out and then, you know, we had to follow up and make sure things happened. So for me, that was a really, that's probably the biggest reward I got from this American release was realizing that, hey, this is it. Like, you did it independent. You did it in Canada. You did it in smaller, different territories. But now you've signed. You've signed it on an international level. Whatever you do now, like leave it all in the ring now. And everybody has already. The default is a no from everybody until you go ahead and you push and you ask. And don't be afraid of annoying somebody this time because if they're not going to do it for you, they weren't going to do it for you anyway. So just let them know that you really believe in this. And I this time around, I, I really felt like a parent carrying their child through a zombie apocalypse and being like, by any means necessary, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make sure the world knows about you. I'm going to make sure you're safe. And uncomfortable situations, talking to people I don't know, reaching out to people I don't know, buying a plane ticket to go to a city for to potentially get something done, to potentially do a partnership, uh, making investments I didn't understand at those, at those times. But these investments were in me. You know, I wasn't investing in a stock or, 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 or cryptocurrency. I was investing in me saying, hey, you need to be at this show. Uh, you need to be at this gig. You need to talk to these people. You need to put your work out there. Um, and then learning, like, hey, I have a bestseller with spelling mistakes. How many people are not putting out their books because so they're waiting for it to be perfect? I have grammar mistakes, spelling mistakes. Uh, I have another uh, self-published book where two of the pages are the exact same. And it also hit the bestsellers list. Mm. Like what's that book? Um, it's called. Uh, it, it was actually a follow up to this. It was called "101 uh, uh, Life Lessons Without the Bullshit," and it was kind of a more personal stories related to this. Um, but 
it was it was too similar for for me to make a next jump. I I, I could do better, so I wrote another book that's going to be much more thorough. Uh, you know, rich with stories, rich with insights. What's the title of that one? That one's called Things No One Else Can Teach Us. And that's coming out in the fall? October 15th, yeah. Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Things No One Else Can Teach Us. And because the thing with this book is if you do read it, you know, you're, I'm sharing all the lessons, but I'm not telling people all the dumb shit I did to figure these lessons out. Um, and that's why a lot of people start to mistake me for a self-help guru. They think I came out of the box with this knowledge, and I didn't. I messed up a lot. And um, the second well, that's, that's book the shows thing, that. that. That's the issue with a lot of self-help books is that they never explain the story. So and no one appointed them to be on a pedestal. So it just doesn't make any rational sense. Yeah. But um, I like this quote. The approval of others is never more important than your approval of yourself. Yeah. And I think because particularly in social media, we're so dependent now on the approval of others. And we get it like all day long. Like how many likes did I get on my last YouTube video or Instagram post or whatever. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting thing because we we how as, do you wean yourself off of this? Um, I think it's kind of I, I look at it in in terms of a, a sustainability model. So I look at it like, what's the easiest way to gain approval? Well, social media it's, it's an easy way to do it. I can just count my likes, I can count my followers, I can get validated as and, a human and, being. And it's very fast, very feedback. fast, and it's and and it's it's a fantastic dopamine drip. Um, and it's 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 smaller than a microdose, so it doesn't wean it, it doesn't uh, lose its impact the way maybe a hard drug might over time. Um, but it's death by a billion cuts. It's it's really killing yourself in the sense that you're taking all these little drops of dopamine, and but you constantly need them. Whereas before social media, to to feel significant, something had to have been done. And again, I'm not saying there's a million ways people can feel significant, whether it's getting that girl's number, whether it's winning an award, whether it's getting a certain amount of money, whether it's gaining uh, respect of your colleagues, whether it's being published in a special journal. There's a million ways people can do it. And I feel like some are more sustainable than others. And the thing with chasing approval of other people is that you're constantly focused on who they are and what they want. And now you're molding yourself accordingly to that and losing yourself in the process. Right. So I think everybody can rationally say, yeah, yeah, he's right. But again, how do you kind of really train your mind to ignore that just, you know, the billion cuts. I, I look at it as I don't train my mind to ignore it. I, I look at it as potato chips. Validation is potato chips. If you eat one potato chip, you're going to want two potato chips. And I have never, nobody, even the healthiest people have not trained themselves to hate potato chips. Everybody loves them. But what they have trained themselves to do is not put them in the cart. You know, so for me, it means not having social media on the phone that I carry around. Mm. Uh, it means also I like that uh, um, impacting my environment, buying an alarm clock. I have an alarm clock, so when I wake up, my alarm clock goes off. I touch the alarm clock, and there's no interaction with my phone first thing in the morning. Um, it's also understanding that, especially as a creative, which we all are, um, we live. As human beings, and, and this is an idea from uh, Stephen Pressfield's *The War of Art*. As human beings, we are, we are tribal, you know, and we've had to understand a hierarchy in order to survive within our tribes and within our village. You have to, you know, you walk into a room with your family, you have to know where you stand in there. If your father, your grandfather is there, okay, you're, you're below them, but if your niece and nephew are there, you're above them. You find out where you are in the totem pole. The challenge is, as humans, now that we live in these massive metropolitan areas. The hierarchy doesn't make sense anymore. So the hierarchy made sense in middle school because maybe there was a couple hundred kids. We knew who the coolest kid was, you know. We knew who the lamest kid was, and you knew you kind of knew where you were in that pecking order. Mm. But nobody knows what pecking order they're in in New York. You know, you climb to the top of one ladder, that's the bottom of the ladder for somebody else. Mm. You know, your best day is somebody's worst day. Somebody else's rock bottom is what we're aspiring to, and it just it, it, it messes with our wiring. We just we just can't compute it. So what we have to do is we have to stop becoming tribal animals because we no longer function in tribes, we have to become territorial animals and focus not on who we are in relation to other people, but instead of who we are in relation to our territory. And our territory is what we choose it to be. So for Stephen Pressfield, he said, when you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, his territory is the gym. When you think of Stevie Wonder, his territory is the piano. Pick your craft, pick your purpose, pick your obsession, and find significance in every day getting better at that. And now, everything else is a byproduct of that, whether it's success, whether it's accolades, whether it's attention. Those are no longer the motive behind doing it, but they'll continue to come. And I think you have to 
remind yourself a lot too of that because I, I agree with that and then i think part of it is whenever you like if you put out a new video you you, you know you focus for weeks and weeks on getting better or you make a new video or you really like it you put it out there your first instinct is going to be to see well how did it, in the first hour did it get yeah. ten thousand likes like i think you have to keep reminding yourself that hey this is why i do this not for the likes but for to get better and to compare myself to who I was yesterday in this obsession yeah. and, and so on. And I believe our society, you know, society itself has been based off of there being something at the end, there being a finish line, there being a happily ever after, there being a reward, there being a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So we've been thinking about this and then we just keep moving the goalposts. So it's like you drop your first video and you get 100 views in an hour. You're like, whoa, 100 people I don't even know watch my video. A year later, your benchmark has turned into 10,000. And now all of a sudden, 8,000 people watched it in the first hour, and you're like, what's wrong? Do they hate me? And yeah, a am, year, I no, am I no longer good? Yeah, am I no longer good? And you, and you got to remind yourself, like, yo, when it was 100 people, like, this, this was, you know, you were celebrating. And now all of a sudden, you've lost that gratitude. And again, I don't think this is a failing as who we are as human beings. I feel like this is just a reaction of our primal instincts you know, mixed with modern society. Our primal instincts are like, you had this, now you have less, you should be afraid. I, I think I think there's also something to be said towards, you know, and just as an exercise, towards creating something that, you know, people won't like. So, so again, there's a, a a tendency I feel when I write something, uh, I know what you know. There's a tendency sometimes for the audience to control the artist. Yeah. So I'll write something because I know my audience is triggered by these words I use, yeah. and they'll like it, and then I'll feel good. Yeah. And so sometimes it's important to write something you you know or you you hope that they might hate. So that so that you're really trying something new, yeah. you know, something that you like, but you think they'll hate. So, like a, a great example is, um, you know, Bob Dylan in his book, I, I think his memoir is Chronicles. He describes how several times he switches genres without really caring about the audience at all, and they do in fact hate what he does, the new yeah. things, and but he just does it. And now the guy is winning the Nobel Prize in Literature. And, so. and, and he's leaning into a fear because I'm sure there's fears in his head, being like, "Whoa, well, if I mess this up, they may not even." check me out if I go back to my old stuff. They might just give up on me. And I know for us, you know, there's a very real world. And we almost kind of live in a world of Greek gods right now where we have all these omnipresent algorithms that we have to appease. Where it's like, hey, I can make dope stuff on YouTube, but I also have to make regular stuff on YouTube. It has to be consistent. Because if YouTube just like, hey, this account's not very active, we're not going to let a lot of people see their stuff. You know, that's a punishment in itself. So now we're creating all these offers for the Instagram God, the YouTube God, the Facebook God, the Snapchat God, the Amazon God. We have to continually feed them content to keep them happy, to keep our discoverability up. And now you're you're in this quality versus quantity yeah, issue. Yeah, that's a, that's a great... Uh... I feel like I want to steal that metaphor. Like, you can have it, man. <laughs> Listen, you can have it. But, but you know, it's it's true because like sometimes I feel like quantity is important. Like if I don't put something out every single day, the Facebook God will hate me. Yeah. You know, and uh, and it goes back to fears. So and then like, all right, let let the Facebook God hate you. You know, all right, let them forget about you. You know, all right, you know, figure and that this is out. a fear. Like I am afraid if I don't publish something for let's say three days like i actually start even to feel physically sick yeah. like because yeah. it's, it's it's that out of the comfort zone and it is uh, and i had the same thing where i and and, I, and my fears were actually correct i was i was releasing regular videos and then i i worked six months on a passion project and the video came out beautifully but algorithmically i hadn't released anything in six months the discoverability like people were like oh we didn't even know you released it and you're like wow like this is real and then for me, it was like, look, you feared this. It actually happened, but you're still alive. And you know what? Certain brands saw it, and now you know you you got other opportunities from it. You know, I still it still got some of the right people still saw it. Not as many people saw it as maybe the other ones. And I I don't want to be a slave to to all of that. No, but it's it's so hard. Like yeah. particularly when 
kind of all, the power of social media I, for me when I was realizing what I could do for my content and audience and so on, I really for a while got super addicted yeah. to that validation because yes. I found this, it's like I found this oil well and I should just keep drilling on it instead of trying to find the next oil well or, yes, yes. or, 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 or something completely different, just going on a hike. Yeah. So, But that, that validation also divides us. For some reason, even though the internet is unlimited and even though, you know, in the 90s, people were competing for that 8 p.m. Friday night time slot, now there's no more time slots. But for some reason, we're still competing for people's attention. Do you ever get, um, like, take your friend Lily Singh. Yeah. Do you ever get uh, jealous? Like, oh my God, she's got 18 million subscribers. Like, why can't, why can't I have a million or two million? Like, um, particularly when it's people you know and you see them rise up in success. I mean, I, I don't know if I could actually like in 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 the context of if I'm jealous of what she has. I think what ends up happening more so is I'm 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 pretty much her plus one for all the cool things that she gets to do. So then part of me, what happens is, for example, I got to we were sitting courtside for the All Star game, hmm. and um, I'm sitting there like, whoa! If I want to continue having a life with these very unique situations, maybe I should play ball the way she plays ball, not. And, and I'm ignoring the part of my brain that's reminding me, like, A, first off, the person you see on camera with her is the person she is. She's being her authentic self in front of the camera, and that's why she's becoming successful. If you're not her, and, and this is not your path, and as much as you want the things that she wants, you will end up losing yourself and probably not being successful at achieving it. But that's happening all, that happens all the time. And I mean, and I'm not talking about, you know, after school specially, hey, this stuff doesn't matter. I got to I got to have a one hour conversation with George Lucas because of somewhere she took me. I, you know, individual and he's he he schooled me on life, philosophy, art, and creativity. And being like, I want more of these experiences where I get to meet these human beings that other people don't get. I got to I got to roller skate with Beyonce. You know, and being like, this stuff is not gonna happen. You know, I, I'm doing very well, but I'm not there's levels to success. So wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. George Lucas. George Lucas. Yes. So, is Ray a Skywalker? What's the deal? Um, oh, you know, we we don't talk about the new stuff. With All him. right. We know we don't talk. He doesn't talk like. It's you like see, a sore subject for him. You see it on his face. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, um, but what, one of the big things he did tell me was, uh, don't think too deeply into uh, Star Wars. I made it for twelve-year-old awkward boys. Jar Jar Binks <laughs> is a twelve-year-old awkward boy, and I made this movie for them. And I, I wanted I, to create a universe where nobody got shot in the back. Even though, I guess, uh, yeah, no one got shot in the back really, right? He's like, so he said to me, everything. <laughs> no, one, no one reads a book either, by the way. Nobody reads a book, yeah. <laughs> but he said, I wanted to, he goes, and he goes, I, I only made it, I thought they would never let me make a film again. So I made, I, I made Star Wars with the one chance I had. And, um, and I said, hey, why did you start with part four? And he's like, because I'm an artist, I can do whatever I want. And then he said, also, we didn't have the technology to make Yoda fight yet. And Yoda had to fight in part one. And he goes, it wasn't until Jurassic Park that I'd like, oh, now we can make Yoda fight. Let's make part one. And I was like, your answers That's are so, so casual. Oh, so funny. Yeah. And I'm like, these are like, these are the things that, you know, people would love to hear. And he's just like, and he, and he, he was telling me about like the analogies and, and, and relating it to, you know, to Ewoks and the Vietnam War, you know, uh, a group of people with, with primitive technology defeating uh, a far superior technologically based uh, oppressor. And he's like, these are the stories I was trying to tell. And, I, and I'm like, have you done like a DVD commentary about this? And he was just like, I really thought people were going to pick up on it. And he goes, now, now I have other, I have more important things to worry about. I, I like his thought about, you know, he basically gave himself permission to um, make the first movie part four. Yeah. Which by the way, for a... Uh, nine-year-old boy, it was very confusing to me. Like, what did I miss the first three parts? Like, I was very anxious for a few minutes uh, as it was the thing was going down. But uh, and I mean, for me, I um, I I was in high school when part one came out, Phantom mm -hmm. Menace. Mm -hmm. So I and it was a girl I liked, and she's like, "We want to go watch it." And I was like, "Yeah." So I watched part four, five, and six very quickly. Just so I could pretend I knew what was going on, because mm -hmm. I'm I'm an '80s baby. I think Star Wars was like I was a little kid when it first came out. Yeah, yeah. So by the time I was a teenager, I was like, "Oh, these graphics suck compared to Jurassic Park." Not realizing it was the same people. 
And when he was telling me, he went in depth. He really went in depth. It was an hour conversation, just me and him. And, um, and it all started with me just asking a simple question and him just, I guess, having nowhere to be at that time. And <laughs> what in was my, the simple question you asked him? Um, I was asking him about a deal that I had on the table because I'd, I'd watched him do a talk about how he's still an independent filmmaker. Even though he's on a big scale, he's independent. And he talked about the importance of maintaining ownership. And I had a deal, a music deal on the table where they said, look, we can give you a budget and everything, but we can't, we can't give you your masters. Like For this project, we're keeping the masters. So I said, hey, I have a deal on the table. They're going to keep my masters. You're big on ownership. It was an excuse to talk to him, but I figured he'd give me a good answer too. And I'm like, What's, what are your thoughts? And he just said, hey, well, if it's your first deal and you haven't proven yourself, you take the deal. You knock it out of the park, and then you guys negotiate for the second one. And he right. Goes, he still did American Graffiti first. Yeah. And THX one one three eight. Exactly. So. And he and, and and he's like he viewed his first Star Wars movie as his last. He's like, they they're, they're letting me make this. Let's just have fun and do it. And every progressive film, he took more and more ownership and more and more equity in it. And he also paid his actors in equity. And in my head, I'm sitting there like, does he want? to talk to me right now because he keeps talking. Hey, pay attention to what he's saying. my best friend right now? Yeah. And I was like, is it rude if I pull out my notepad and I can hear his phone buzzing, but he's not picking it up. Okay, he wants to talk to me. Okay, he cares about what he's saying. Pay attention to what he's saying. Stop talking to yourself. And it was just a surreal moment. I'm like, are people going to believe me when I tell them this story? Should I tell people this story? Because if I tell this story, maybe I won't get invited back to the places where I got to meet him. But I was like, it was important because I felt like he was talking to me as if other people should have known some of the things he was saying, and I realized it wasn't. So when I had those moments, I was like, I need to, I need to get my Lily Singh on. I need to, to do it that way. The irony of it is she, she used her success to build an environment for me to be the person I was. Mm-hmm. And she goes, don't play the game. Don't play the success game. Don't try to climb the ladder. You're, you're a weirdo little artist. Here, I can afford a place now in L.A. I got a two-bedroom spot. Here's your corner. Come whenever you want. Figure yourself out. Just make sure you're working. Don't come out here and party. And I definitely did not party when I was out there, and I worked and I worked. And um, a lot of the seeds that I had first planted started to, to sprout, including this book. I mean, I, I wrote the book not thinking it would, it would make it this far, um, but realizing and I understand why I made it this far. And a couple of other things, I, you know, I, designed, I designed T-shirts. I know people can't see it right now, but I have a whole collection of shirts that I just put so I can wear in my videos. And every day that they're, they're selling, I get notifications on my emails. That's a real nice one. My shirts. I like the colors. <laughs> and I mean, these are things that I had to learn how to make them in the beginning because I had to sell them at shows. And then my music videos, I had to shoot my own music videos because my music video guy got in a fight with his wife and stopped picking up my calls. And that evolved into me having my own team in Toronto now so I can shoot high level music videos. And that got me meetings with major labels. I had a major ma- label meeting in LA a week ago. And that wasn't even about me as an artist. That was about me as a music video director. Mm. So now all of a sudden, you know, success is kind of a curve like this where it's, you know, as everything is starting to work, it's starting to move. So for me, uh, there isn't a lot of jealousy because I also see uh, her work ethic is is not something I can describe to people. It is ridiculous. And um, it's the type of work ethic where you can't tell little kids, like, if you work hard, you can be Lily's thing. It's like, no. You're going to need her genetic makeup and her obsessive compulsive behavior and not have a social life and never leave the house and just be obsessed with what you're doing. And she works so hard and she taught me a lot. She taught me that your biggest reward are opportunities, not rewards. It's If somebody gives you an opportunity to work, that's what you're working towards. That's really a fascinating way to put it. Yeah. Your biggest, your biggest... Biggest success is your opportunities, not your rewards. Yeah. So more, if somebody gives you another opportunity to work, that's what you're you're aiming for, and everything else comes. And I think the first time when we became really good friends, and even when we started talking about money, like, it wasn't about how much money she made; it was about how much money she had turned down that year, and saying, you know, you, you can't work on stuff that's not fun. It's gonna it's gonna eat, it's gonna chip away at you. What's the difference between? You know, doing a commercial for a brand you don't like and having to flood your social media with them and, and working that office job. You know, mm. now you're gonna have a chip on your shoulder with that money you made, and you're gonna be like, "Oh, I gotta buy something really nice to make myself fe- to wash off the shame of what I just did." And she's like, "Don't ever do it for the money. The money will find you." And it sounds so philosophical and 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 kind of fairy taleish, but you start to realize it's like it's true. When you add value to people's lives. Everybody around you starts to be on your team and provide you with the resources to add more value. Mm. And this is what I want to tell all my artist friends. Stop asking for support. 
Stop saying, hey guys, Humble the Poet, new song. Please support me. Hey, Humble the Poet got a new book. Please support me and buy it. Because that's not what the folks who make the iPhone say to you. They don't say, hey, iPhone X is out. Please support us. They're like, they got you lined up around the building because they provide some sort of value to your life, whether it's a status symbol, whether it's impressing your friends, whether it's giving you better selfies, whether it's helping you make phone calls. People used to use phones to actually make calls back in the days. But adding value to people's lives and serving people in whatever capacity you want, whether you're serving people, uh, you know, giving them an efficient way to eat their food quicker, delivering food to their house, whether you're what they're listening to on the radio when they're stuck in traffic, you add value to people's lives, you won't encounter as much resistance. And I had to learn that uh, by just letting go of all the chips I had on my shoulder. I had to let go of comparing myself to her success. Mm. Um, there was a point, and this is actually a story in the second book, where you know she, she covers, she vlogs her life. She, she videos, she used to video her life every day and, and she wised up and now she does it like once a week. But we went grocery shopping, and she asked me to buy, ban- buy bananas. And I came back with a bushel of green bananas, and I put them in the cart. And she's like, what are those? And I was like, they're bananas. She's like, why are they green? Because my mother raised me, you buy the bananas green, let them turn yellow. You know, that way you don't waste any bananas. Immigrant mindset. And I, I guess she grew up differently, where you bought them yellow, and you just tried to finish them before they turned black. But the simple fact that her following is 10 times my following, and... I became known as the green banana guy. <laughs> and more people knew me as the green banana guy than the guy who wrote the book, than the guy who made the music, than the guy who did anything. Any contribution I had got dwarfed by being known for the green banana guy. That's so funny. And, and you know, I was also about to say, you have all these great stories from these people you've met too as yeah. you've kind of gone on this journey which led to this first book. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a book just telling all these stories, but it sounds like that's the second book. That, gonna... That's the second book. And, and then me going in deep and being like, look, I didn't have a talk with the millions of people who call me Green Banana Guy. I had to check my ego and be like, why is this bothering me? Hmm. You know. And in the beginning, I had to have a talk even with Lily about it. And she's like, look, I won't put you on the camera anymore if it makes you feel better. And I was like, to this day, that happened in 2016. Till this day, I have DMs on social media where people are sending me pictures of bananas. To like, hey, because the joke got it, it stretched to humble thinks the color green is yellow, so they'll send me pictures of like limes and be like, humble, do you think this is a lemon? And it's, it's just young <laughs> kids, and it, this really bruising my ego because I was like, I'm I'm a caricature. Nobody knows me for the important work I do, but that's all my ego talking. Eventually, I owned it, and I said, hey, I, you know, I started a hashtag Team Greenish, and I would always I would lean into the jokes. And that helped people discover. And then people would message me like, hey, I thought you were the banana guy. And I realized you do really dope stuff. I came on your Instagram. You write some really cool work. And it's like, that's better than people just taking me serious anyways. Because I didn't want anyone to think I'm a self-help guru anyways. I'm a, I'm a normal guy who buys green bananas instead of yellow bananas and thinks that's important. And I have fun like everybody else. I do dumb shit like everybody else. What I bring to the table is I put words together very well. That's my thing. And I can take complex ideas and complex emotions that I felt and I had to put them in words so that they stopped haunting me. And I typed up those words and I shared them with people who I thought would care. And I built a community off of that. I am not any smarter or any wiser than anybody else. I just have now opened myself up to realizing that, hey, every opportunity is a lesson. Every situation that we have is an opportunity to, to, to learn and grow from it. And there's a lot of universal truths and attributes and lessons that we can apply to life. And even them will not, they won't work, you know, maybe two, three percent of the time. As we said, we can't lean into all our fears. We might end up dead. And, you know, I might, I've tried a million things out and failed. But at the same time, I've reappropriated the idea of failure. To me, failure isn't the opposite of success. Failure is how, is what we pave our road with to get to success. And this is no, you know, this scientists already know this. Scientists look forward to failing to figure out what's not working in their test. They don't have an emotional attachment to it. And it should be the same thing with us. If you're starting out a new podcast, you got to, it can't be perfect the first time. You got to trial and error, try this out. Go back to your favorite television show that's been on for nine seasons. Go back to the first season. It doesn't look the same. The set doesn't look the same. The quality of the acting isn't the same. You know, nobody starts perfect. And being a, messing up isn't the end of the world. And I think that's the big thing. And 
at the same time, I talk a lot about in the book, remember your mortality. You're going to die. How much of this will be a big deal on the last day of your life? Don't be afraid to be embarrassed. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to have to reinvent yourself. Um, I lost all my money. You've lost all your money a few times. You, you can bounce back from it. You know, you know you can bounce back from it, so you're probably not as afraid to do it again. And I think... No, I'm pretty afraid to lose all my <laughs> money again. <laughs> is it because you just keep making more and more and now it's just... Well, I have, the thing is, I do have more confidence that I can make it again, but it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> so I don't want to have to do it again. Ideally. You don't, you don't, you're not afraid of it, you just don't want to welcome it I want it new challenges. New know? challenges. And yeah. I think that's the thing, too. I've met a lot of people who have become very successful who have still devoted themselves to a life of discomfort. They just find new things and new challenges because... Media taught us is going to be happily ever after. There's going to be a day where we don't have to deal with any more obstacles, any more bullshit. That doesn't exist. No matter who you are, you're going to have a new challenge every single day. You're going to have new problems every single day. And I think I, I think you're right. Like leaning into them and is the way to experience new things. And many of those new things will will surprise you in surprising ways, in unusual ways, because you don't know yet until yeah. you until you go you into it. You absolutely don't know. And as well as the ideal life is when you are excited to tackle those challenges and problems. Like if all of a sudden, you know, finances aren't an issue anymore and you decide, all right, I'm going to devote my life to, to restoring this corner of Central Park. You know, there's going to be a lot of challenges involved with it, but you might be enthusiastic about solving those problems. You know, um, that's what a nerd is. And anything that they love, they love solving those problems, whatever, whether it's in a sport, whether it's in a video game, whether it's in, uh, you know, writing a piece of poetry. I think Eminem loves challenges and putting words together and finding new cadences. I think he's obsessed with that. And I feel yeah, like the money new ways the fame, to tell his story. Yeah. You know, new ways to, you know, you know, everybody tries to mimic his style, but then he changes styles. So. He changes his styles, yeah. And so, Outkast was the same way. I feel like even Lil Wayne, Lil Wayne, I saw an interview with him where he said, a lot of rappers fail because they fall in love with the rewards of rapping. He goes, for me, I was always in love with rapping. Mm. He goes, I just used my money to give me more time in the studio. He goes, well, everybody else is too busy partying. And he goes, that's why I will always be here because I love the craft. Mm. Lil Wayne's territory is his craft, is, is rap. He's not comparing himself to other people. looking at territories instead of tribes too. Yeah. So, you know, I... I kind of want to go through all 101 chapters, but I'll, clo I'll close with this, chapter 16, which we've already talked about, yeah. but I'll say it again in, in these words you use. Pave your own road. There's less traffic. I'm a firm believer in this. Uh, I always tell my kids even, uh, you know, again, it's find the place least crowded. That's where you're going to find all of your personal success, essentially. So it's like what Lily was telling you about, hey, be... You don't be me. Yeah. And and look, I think I think this book is great. I loved reading it. I've read it two or three times now, actually. Since and again, the, the first time I read it, I just pull, pulled it out of the envelope from the publisher. I'm like, oh, okay, I like the cover. I turned to a page. Oh, yeah, it looks interesting. And I just kept reading it. I read the whole. Oh, that's that so beautiful, man. <laughs> and then it's just like a few days later. Like I said, Jay Shetty uh, introduced me to you, and I forwarded to. Steve, the podcast producer. Oh, let's get him on the podcast. Yeah, we had we had a great chat, and and that's the thing that I, I really love about this is I feel like, you know, it, it it was a seed that is is having its own journey, and now it's putting me in a position where now I have to just remind myself, like, look, you need to chase the fun. Like, I do have, you know, my next uh, music project is going to be a short film musical. I'm making I'm making my own Kanye West Runaway, and. You know, I've been writing it in my head forever, but now I was like, okay, listen, after this date, you know, because I had a list of, of, of media things I had to do. I had a list of, of, of a wish list of media I wanted to do. I was like, at this date, we're going to cut off. We're going we're gonna to take off the promotional hat and we're going to sit down in Toronto and we're just going to pull out the laptop and we're just going to start writing and working. And there's going to be unsexy parts of that job. Producing a film is hard. You know, casting for a film is hard. Uh, negotiating with people is hard. It's, there's going to be challenges with it, but we're going to lean into it, knowing that there's going to be fun stuff and not so much fun stuff. But at least now, especially with the success of this book, we don't have to have any expectations other than to finish it and be proud of it. And now I'm setting a lot of different goals. I uh, At the All-Star Game, I met J. Cole, and I'm like, hey, you got a festival called the Dream, Dreamville Festival? I, I will be performing in 2020 at your festival. 
I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I will do it. And I, I got two assistants and I was like, look, once the second book is done and we've done our promo run for it, we're going to put all our resources just figuring out how to get onto that stage. And I'm not promising myself everlasting happiness by getting on that stage. It's just I deserve some fun and I'm going to work my butt off to make that happen. And then I'll pick something else funky to do. Or, you know, maybe take my parents on a trip and learn as a writer, you know, 90% of your life is living life in order to have something to write about. And I'm so grateful that my, my agent, Mark Gerald, um, is not as business-minded. He's more artistically-minded. And he doesn't want the next book to work. He wants the next book to take the community deeper. Mm-hmm. And he's like, don't think of a third book unless you're taking them even deeper. Mm-hmm. Don't just rehash the same stuff. So Unlearn is a very easy book to read. But it's also a contract that you're, you're now part of my community. I call my community my handsome friends. And... When we go with the second book, we're going to go a little bit deeper, and then I won't come up with another book until I take you even deeper. We, uh, will you come back to New York for the second book? Uh, uh, listen, uh, I'm, I'm always in New York anyway, so I'll, I'll be here for that, but I, I would love to. I know uh, I, I would appreciate it uh, being yeah, up on, on here chatting with that. Be- become a regular guest. Our, yeah. our, I always say I, this is a business trick I learned in the 90s, but it applies to podcast guests. The best... New customers or your old customers. Yeah. So the best new guests are your old guests. Okay. You know, so that's not a common thought for podcasters. Most other podcasters are like, I can only come on, you can only come on once a year. And oh, I'm man. marking it on my calendar and like, no, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I appreciate the humble the poet. You are truly humble. And <laughs> uh, the book is Unlearn 101 Simple Truths for a Better Life. I also. Uh, I think people should check out Humble the Poet's, um, you know, uh, YouTube channel and your blog. Just Google Humble the Poet blog is great stuff. And but definitely the YouTube channel. See your music videos. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.